0: Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is able to turn our mourning into dancing. Whether it is grief over an illness or a broken relationship or of our own sin, that you and you alone can do this. That you and you alone can bring joy in the darkest places. And God, we thank you that not only are you able to do it, but you're in the business of doing it, that that's one of the things you do for us, that you bring us joy, that in our despair, God, we can cry out to you, we can look at the standing we have in you in Christ Jesus, that we can look forward to future hope, hope, To the day when we will have resurrected bodies like Christ. When we will finally be home. Not here, but home with you in heaven. And, And Lord, we long for that. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from finding contentment in this world. God, that You would keep us from from having too many joys that don't last. And that You would keep our souls craving for heaven. And help our hearts rejoice at every glimpse of it we get from now until we arrive home. Thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think we've all done it. I think we've all had moments where we have, you know, it, you know, it's a Saturday when football isn't around, and so you're flipping the channels, and you just, there's nothing on, and you find yourself, you're sucked in. And pretty soon you're like, you know what, that is the best vacuum I've ever seen. And I thought it was a commercial, but it turned into the best show I've seen all day. And maybe it's not a vacuum. Maybe it's the the greatest knife, an air fryer, uh, some makeup you didn't know you needed. Uh, and, And some of you dudes are out there, and you're like, that would help my complexion. But you're just too ashamed to admit it. And we get trapped into these infomercials. And every infomercial, no matter the product whether it's a vacuum, makeup, a kitchen gadget, or, or the, the sham wow. They all have the same chorus, if you will. But wait, there's more. And it's laughable because you see it coming a mile away and you're kind of curious what they're going to do. But imagine with me for a moment if the but wait, there's more was actually to something better and greater and true. Well, then you'd have to call now. But we get, we get skeptical of the but wait, there's more. We don't quite believe it. And it, it becomes a laughable line when anyone says, but wait, there's more. But there's a place where that's true. And that place is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing to people and preaching to people who are in the backdrop of their own sin of idolatry of the impending judgment of god every savior of sorts that they've tried has not worked the bails haven't worked working out their own righteousness through going to the temple every sabbath through offering sacrifices just for the sake of jumping through the hoops, none of that has worked. Their kings haven't worked. And they're being confronted with all these failed attempts at self-righteousness and worldly righteousness over and over and over again. And they're seeing the danger of their own hard-heartedness. And even in the middle of Isaiah, they go off into exile. And where we were at last week, where we were this week, where we'll be next week in Good Friday, these servant songs are written to people who are in exile. They're in the misery of their sin. They're in darkness. They don't think they'll ever come out. They're hearing these songs. And and the book of Isaiah as a whole, as it unfolds, is a perpetual christ Christological, but wait, there's more. You've tried this and it hasn't worked. You've tried that and it just makes it worse. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Let me tell you about the one whom the virgin will give birth to. Let me tell you about the Prince of Peace. And now he's saying, let me tell you about the servant of the Lord. And it is one after another, but wait, there's more about Jesus. And surely for Paul and the other disciples, the apostles in the early church, the book of Isaiah would have been a huge piece of their theology of Jesus. And so let's turn to Isaiah 49. And let's look at the next segment of but wait there's more about our savior listen to me o coastlands give attention to your peoples from afar the lord called me from the womb from the body of my mother he named my name he made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand he hid me he made me a polished arrow in the In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me, from the womb of his servant, to bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise Princes shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out! To those who are in darkness, Appear! Appear! They shall feed along the ways on the barren heights; shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst; neither scorching nor wind nor sun shall strike them, for He who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my mountains er all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, exult all earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Here we have this song of the servant of the Lord. A servant who is not just a servant of the Lord to reach Israel, but to the nations. And the Lord's servant is coming to restore Israel and be a light to the nations. Is what we are singing in this song. That He is coming to restore Israel and to be a light to the nations. And the first way we see this, the first verse of the song, if you will is that He is a personal, righteous Redeemer. Look at these first five verses. In verse 1, He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, give attention to the peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And then in verse 5, He who formed me in the womb of His servant." The servant of the Lord who we, who we heard about last week from Isaiah 42 is not just a figure in the heavens. He is not just a spirit, but he has a body. He is coming in personal form. He has personhood. We have a tendency, like God's people in Isaiah and in the Old Testament, to take for granted God's goodness his power, provision, and plan. And this is one of the places we could do so as we learn about the servant of God. That we we take for granted this miracle that God took on flesh. That He became one of us. that that he has flesh that he was made that he was born and here in verse in verses 1 to 5 we actually have the servant singing about himself i think these 5 verses could be in red as jesus is saying this about himself he's talking about his own incarnation From the body of my mother he named my name. And you think of the angel appearing to Mary and saying his name will be Jesus. The servant here is not just a bringer of gentleness and justice, but an actual physical person. And some of the language here is similar to what we see in the prophets. You know, you think of Jeremiah in particular, where God says to Jeremiah at his commissioning, when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. But this has a different tone to it. Because here the servant is saying, God, you gave me a body in my mother's womb. The, The servant is having no wrestling with his commissioning as a prophet, as a servant of God. He's praising God for giving him the body he has, this body that's, a, that's central to him serving. And these servant songs build on each other. And so we had last week where he's so gentle and caring, and he's bringing justice, and now we see that he has a body, and in, in next week in Good Friday we're going to see what that body means. That God has given him this body for this work. In the other prophets, it's always God telling his servant, and servant with a lowercase s, that he has selected him. But here the servant with a capital S is praising God for how he has been at work from even in the womb, getting him ready for his work. He is is writing as a prophet, the servant, but as a prophet who has a very different relationship with God than the others. Now when we read poetry of any kind, Hebrew poetry is no exception, we look for uh, different tools in the poetry to help us see what's going on. And one of those tools is parallelism. And how different stanzas line up. And either they, they magnify or they contrast. There's a lot of different things the parallelisms do. And here, it's one of contrast as we look at through verses 2 through 5. And we start out, there's, there's a, he's spectacular and he is concealed. Is this first contrast. You made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And the servant is saying, God, you have made me very powerful and direct and for a purpose, and you have concealed me. This mouth like a sharp sword echoes of Isaiah 11, where he'll strike down his enemies with the rod of his mouth. It it foreshadows Revelation 19, where Jesus is seen as the rider on the white horse, his robe is dipped in blood, on his robe and on his thigh is written Lord of Lords, and the nations have been stirred up by the beast to wage war on on the lamb and his followers, and the rider on the white horse cuts them down with the sword of his mouth. We have other words. In scripture, where the tongue is, a, is sharper than any double-edged sword. That we have a servant who has a mouth that is able to do great things. And we see this in the Gospels as the mouth of Christ speaks healing, raises people from the dead, rebukes those who have a facade of religion, and gently corrects those who need it and speaks tenderly to the broken. And then we have that he is a polished arrow, an arrow with a specific purpose, hidden in the quiver of God. And we have to think of psalms where we hear that, that children are a blessing, they are Arrows in the quiver to be sent. That this speaks too to the special relationship of the servant and father God. But God does conceal him. And the reader, we have to wonder, the people are in exile, God. Isn't this the time to pull out the arrow? Isn't this the time while we are in exile, while we are hurting? Isn't this the time, Father, for this servant to come and do his work? But God concealed him. God's plan required concealment of the servant. Because God's plan is not our plan. It's much higher than our plan. And if we were sent to write the plan for redemption, it would surely fall short. And we get in the last servant song a picture of this concealment as the servant we see is is really not that attractive. He's a dry root out of dry ground. He's very plain. There is nothing to draw us to him. And as Christ's ministry unfolded, we see when people got a glimpse that he's the servant of God, what they tried to do, that they wanted to make him king. God's plan for Christ required that Jesus would die for us so that He could bring a heavenly kingdom as opposed to an earthly one that so many have tried to establish in different ways. The servant of God is unique. He is powerful. He has a deliberate purpose. And God kept him concealed so that at just the right time, Christ would die for the ungodly. Praise God for that. I praise God for the wisdom that He has in this plan, the wisdom that He has, the long suffering that He would wait so long for at just the right moment, that God wasn't impatient with this. That Jesus is spectacular, but He's concealed. And we also see that He's despaired, but honored. Listen to the words of the servant. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. This is an unexpected thing for us, that the servant of the Lord would grow despondent, that he would experience despair. Maybe we could better ask, why wouldn't he be? This is a servant of the Lord, meant to restore Jacob back to God, to bring God's people from afar And God's people are in their darkest moment. They are in exile. They are in foreign land. This had to be frustrating for the servant. But even when Jesus came, he experienced frustration. How many times did he have to talk to the disciples, starting by saying, Oh, you of little faith, or asking them, how long do I have to be with you before you get this? And I think of how many times my Savior must be saying something like that to me. Chuck, you should get it by now. Chuck, when are you going to understand this? Commentator Mott, your points out to this despair. and He says, this shows us the humanity of Christ maybe even more than the body He's been given. That Jesus didn't just look like us, but He experienced our emotions. That Jesus had long days and long weeks. And Jesus wished things... We're going differently. Come on, Peter, get it together. But where we see the servant is he doesn't stay in his despair, but he moves to something else pretty quickly. And where he moves is he moves back to the Father. Yet my right is with the Lord, my recompense is with God. That he doesn't stay in his despair but he he remembers God's plan, God's power, and he restates his resting faith in the Lord. His security and standing is not with the nation of Israel who are unable to keep God's word. His his standing, his his stature is with God, who says in verse 3, you are my servant, and he gives him a peculiar name. He calls him Israel. Israel. You are Israel. And in doing so, he says to the servant, you are everything my people were meant to be. You are the one who will keep my law to perfection. You are the one who will be righteous to make righteousness possible. And you are the one, and he says, in whom I will be glorified. It's more literally translated, in whom my beauty or splendor will be revealed. That it's through this servant. And this servant with this great task experiences this great despair. God, I know you've called me to this. This is how I feel. And then he goes right back to who God has called him to be. And we all have moments of great stress. You know, we'll, we'll go to... Certain passages that remind us of who God has called us to be. Maybe you've gone to a conference or you have a favorite podcast or there's a a sermon you revisit over and over again that reminds you you're the salt of the earth, that a city on a hill cannot be hidden, reminds you that you're an adopted child, co-heir with Christ in the Spirit of God. And when Wednesday comes and you're just so frustrated, you need to keep going back to that. We all have these moments of stress and despair. And I don't know what for you is causing that right now. Maybe it's an illness, a family member, or something at work, or or something else entirely. But I want you to think about that. I want you to, and put a name to that stress or anxiety. Don't say it out loud, because the person might be next to you. (laughs) But think of that for a moment. Put a name to that. And then I want you to think about this. How does God want you to act in that situation? What is God desiring from you in that? In your office or in your home? What is God desiring from you? He's put you there. In his sovereignty, he put you right there. What is he desiring of you? The servant in his distress, he right away defaults to his standing with God. I'm perplexed and God is at my right hand. Can we follow Jesus in this? That in all the things that you're frustrated in, in all the things you can't wait to be over, as you get ready to step into that situation, go to work tomorrow, go to the doctor's office this week, answer your emails, whatever it is. As you get ready to enter into that, can you just say, because of Christ, I'm a child of God. My name is written on His hand. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Isn't this great? The servant had a task from the father. And it didn't always feel great to gather God's people out of exile. But he knew that God was his strength. And in the hardest moments of serving, he served with the confidence of God's power and plan. God made that servant so much more than a rescuer of Israel. He made him the glorious light of the world. Verse six, this is such a great verse. Now there now God is talking to the servant. And so in verses one to five, the son of God, the servant of God was speaking. Now the father responds. And the servant has just said, I'm complete. I feel like everything I've done is vanity, but I know who you are, God. I know your plan in this. And God says this back to him: it is too light a thing that. You should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It is too light of thing, Jesus, that you would only draw my exiles out of exile, that you would only draw them out of where they are in geographical distance and spiritual distance from me, and that you would bring them back to right standing with me. Jesus, that you would do that for the people of Israel is too small for you. You will be a light to the nations. Salvation to reach the ends of the earth. Jesus is too big of a Savior to just save Israel. He's too big. The servant has been sent to restore, but that's not enough. It would waste Jesus if He only saved Israel. He is for the nations. This would be like having a supercomputer to only play Minesweeper on. Or a jeep that never left the pavement. Jesus is a light for the nations. To not only fulfill the righteousness of the law for the people of Israel, but for all of us. For the nations to know God. Remember who this song is to. This song is not to the people of Israel in exile this song is to the coastlands and peoples from afar it's to all creation jesus is singing to all creation he starts the song listen up o coastlands and know who i am and god joins in and saying that he's your savior that he's bringing salvation to you That when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for the sins of Israel, but the sins of the world. One of my favorite stories I heard in the history of church as I went through perspectives was that of the Moravian church. And it was one of the first major missionary sending movements that we saw out of the church, where a church really focused on sending people to the nations, and they learned of these slaves that had no one telling them the gospel, and they were going to die in physical slavery as well as spiritual bondage to their sin without a hope of the gospel. And so they sent missionaries who packed their belongings in their own caskets, knowing that they would go there to die, and as they boarded a ship to be sold into slavery so they could take the gospel to the slaves, they waved to their church at the docks, saying, may the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering." The coastlands need to hear of their Savior. And we get a glimpse of how God is going to send the light to the nations. As he says, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. And here's how he refers to the servant. No wonder the servant was in despair. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. That, that the servant will somehow, and we don't know this yet. We're going to see this in, on Good Friday. Good Friday when we get to the final song, that this servant, we're going to see it next week, is going to be despised and abhorred. How could that be? How could that be good? But even as he becomes the servant of rulers, he will become the object of praise and reverence from kings and princes. You know what it takes for a king to stand up out of his own throne? Or for a prince who knows that the world is going to be his one day to bow down, not just to lower himself, but to lay prostrate on the ground. It takes a king who is much greater than himself. That this servant, who will be deeply despised, is also the king of kings. And they will bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen this servant. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of sorts of Philippians 2 where Jesus humbles himself to death but is given a name that is above every name that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The servant has a worldwide effectiveness as Savior. And we're about to see that he has a worldwide reach and praise as the covenantal savior. I regret that we only have 1 week to go through this passage in Isaiah 49. I pray that God will forgive me for all the things I'm having to go through quickly. But here we see that the servant is not just the mediator of the covenant as Moses was, but he is the covenant I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people that he is the way that people relate to God and have standing with God. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is one of those things where we realize our need for the Old Testament because of how it informs the New Testament and gives us so much meaning. So that when when we get to the Last Supper, it's not random that Jesus passes the cup and says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Because Jesus himself, as told 700 years prior to that night, is the covenant. He's not a symbol of the covenant. He is the covenant. He is the way provided by God for Israel and the nations to walk with him. And then he begins his task as the good shepherd. As he becomes the covenant and then he goes to the prisoners and says, come out. And he goes to those who are in darkness, appear. And he calls them to himself and he gathers them. And he gives freedom and light to those who do not have it. And he shepherds his people. He takes them across the barren heights and he finds pasture for them in surprising places. He is an unexpected shepherd calling sheep that people didn't know existed because they were in prison and darkness, finding them nourishing pastures in places where you wouldn't expect to see them. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind or sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water will guide them. That Jesus takes care. And there's this salvific leading described in Isaiah. And one of the things that we see in Isaiah is that there's smooth places to walk where there shouldn't be. That as we follow Jesus, we will follow Jesus to places that look from afar very rough and impossible to pass. And as we follow Jesus through those really rough and impossible to cross places, we'll find paths. Indeed, we'll find highways raised up from the ground. As we cross the mountains, the nations are going to hear about Jesus. And the way our Savior, the way the servant of the Lord has decided they will hear about Jesus is through His sheep going across the mountains. His sheep going to the places where it looks like there's no food. His sheep going to the places where it looks like the elements, the sun and the scorching wind will kill them. Where it looks like they're going to get dehydrated to death. And as they follow the Savior, there's food there's nourishment, and there's smooth paths. We need to not be afraid of going, sacrificial sending, of praying, of welcoming, of helping others to do the same. We may be what the original readers of Isaiah 49 would have considered to be the ends of the earth, but the ends of the earth have not yet been reached with the gospel and we need to go and going may be across the street for you going may be to setting up just a very regular time that you're eating at a restaurant owned by refugees who don't know jesus so that you can build a relationship with them and one day share the good news of christ with them most likely over and over and over again until they believe It may be going to members of your family to share with. And all of this feels like mountains. And all of this feels like impassable places, but as we follow our Savior, the mountains are made smooth. And as we look at this past passage of what our, our Savior, our Shepherd does, that He calls us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That as He provides for us, as He makes playing the paths for us to walk in as he feeds us and leads us to springs of water. We're no longer looking at the mountains. We're looking at our glorious Savior. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at the servant of the Lord who is too big for Israel and needs to be enjoyed by all the nations because that's who he is saving. And he saves from surprising places, from the west and from the east. And, from, and then he names like one place, which is a region in Egypt, that God's even going to save from Egypt who held his people captive. As God's getting ready to bring his people out of captivity, as he's getting ready to come, I'm even going to save the captors. What a marvelous saviour. And so we join with the nations and all creation. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, in singing. Let the mountains not sing alone, but may we join them. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. And may we join with all creation as the servant has made plain the splendor and beauty of the Lord. I know that the idea of being involved in the great commission of God to preach the gospel to all creation, to make disciples of all nations, is an intimidating thing, especially when it involves more than writing a check to the missionary who comes by once in a while. That when it involves becoming friends with the family down the street of a different ethnicity than you, when it involves talking to your neighbors and family members and coworkers about Jesus, that it can be really intimidating. And I know that some people are a little more gifted than others in this. And you may view yourself at the bottom of the gifting on that. That's fine. Here's what I want to ask Do your friends and neighbors, not not do they know that they need a relationship with with, with the Savior, with God, but do they know that you find Jesus beautiful? Do they know that you find God glorious? And maybe you just start there. That you join in all creation, singing of the beauty of God, And let's start by letting people know that the the servant of God is glorious and makes God's glory known. And I find God to be absolutely amazing. Can we start in joining this song? Let's pray. Father God, we do praise You. We thank You for Your great beauty that You would save us that You would save people from surprising ways, surpri- from surprising places. Jesus, that You are too big of a Savior for one nation. That You are the Savior of every nation. May we marvel at that. And Lord, give us grace as we partner in that. We ask this in the name of Jesus. The servant of the Lord. Amen.